0: This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right, good morning. Thanks for coming back. I uh, hope you guys benefited from Drew's teaching last week on Job. Got one more today. We're going to talk about, we're going to answer some questions look at some texts, and then you're going to leave with plenty more questions, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, I do hope as we've gone through this, you know, there is a lot that God's Word has to say about this. I hope that helps you. Um, I think that's helped me as I've read and studied and thought more and more about this. Uh, We don't have answers to everything, but man, the Lord has been kind in giving us things that we can know about him and stand on and be comforted by. And so I hope that your my my hope, my prayers that have been as we've studied this topic, as we thought about it, your faith and awareness and trust and knowledge of God has only increased and has given you more faith in, in him. So let me pray and then I'll do a quick review and then we'll jump into this week's class. So Lord, I do pray you'd be with us now. These are uh, it's a topic. These are questions. These are issues that um, that we come uh, just humbly before you. And uh, and Lord, we, we need uh, your help. We need your word to lead this uh, study. This the, to lead us to find the answers to these questions. We we need your spirit to get, to give us eyes to see this morning. Uh, so Lord, I pray more than anything we'd leave here or not uh, with Uh, we'd leave here not confident in some theological argument, um, but that we would leave here just full of faith in who you are, and that you are sovereign over all things. You are trustworthy. You are the God who has authored all this, and we can trust you with our lives. No matter what comes our way, whether good or evil, we can be a people of faith and trust, and confidence in you. And so do that in our hearts more than anything, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, so here's the question, here's the logical problem of evil. The God of the Bible is all-powerful. God of the Bible is good, yet evil exists. So therefore, the God of the Bible cannot possibly exist. So the Christian response to, to that accusation is known as theodicy. And uh, the word comes from the Greek words for God and justice. Theodicy provides a solution for the problem of evil that justifies God, defending his integrity, exonerating him from the charge that he is morally culpable for evil. Christians have responded to this problem of evil in two ways. One response emphasizes the autonomy of man's free will and is associated more with Arminianism. The other emphasizes the sovereignty and glory of God and is associated with Calvinism, which is the position that we hold to in our te- and I'll be teaching from this morning. So just a reminder, two criteria that a theodicy must meet. Unique goods. So whatever good God brings about due to evil must be a unique sort of good that otherwise could not have come about without the evil it is dependent upon. Okay, that's important. So, whatever good God brings about due to evil must be a unique sort of good that otherwise could not have come about without the evil it is dependent upon. So, an illustration of this, this is compassion. I, I talked about this last in my first class, George Mueller. He could he could have never cared for 10,000 plus orphans unless there existed a crisis of British children in, in abject poverty. And then weighty goods. The good that comes about due to some evil must be weighty and important enough to justify the existence of the evil the good is dependent upon. So God does not pursue trivial goods out of some weighty and horrendous evil. The good God gets from the evil must be significantly greater than the evil itself. And so what we're holding to, what we're teaching from this class, it's a Position that um, I've learned a lot and pretty much taken his material from a guy named Scott Christensen. Um, his book, um, he, uh, that is excellent. I encourage you to read it. He um, argues for the greater glory theodicy. I think I gave you that, right, in your outline? And, and so you can have that. That'll outline what that is, essentially what that's saying. It's a way to address the problem of evil, that God cho- freely chose to create a world that included the crisis of evil Initiated by the fall so that he might supremely magnify his glory through the redemption that is achieved by his incarnate son, Jesus Christ. The greater glory theodicy claims that a fallen but being redeemed world is far better. So that there it is. The greater good, the greater glory. So a fallen but being redeemed world is far better than an unfallen not needing redemption world because such a world brings far greater glory to God. So there is a greater good theodicy that says, hey, God brought about good, more greater good for man. But what Scott Christensen has come and said, hey, yes, it's brought good, but what is the goal of all that? It is the glory of God. And so what we're saying here is that God is not just bringing about good from evil, even greater good, but he's actually magnifying his name more. He is being more glorious in our eyes. This world that we live in, and that, and that has evil in it. God is able to use that evil and orchestrate and bring about good and glory for his name. And so what the position would say is, is that it's more. There's a greater glory. There's a greater good that has come about. Wayne Grudem says this, However we understand God's relationship to evil, we must never come to the point where we think that we are not responsible for the evil that we do. Okay, so that's important. Or that God takes pleasure in evil or is to be blamed for it. Such a conclusion is clearly contrary to Scripture. Charles Spurgeon said, He who demands a reason from God is not in a fit state to receive one. You guys learned that last week from Job, right? He who demands a reason from God is not in a fit state to receive one. It is when Job surrenders himself to God that he at last at, is at the end of himself, finds comfort. I love this. Bruce Waltke, he gives this helpful sum, summary of Job, which I thought since it's fresh on your mind would be helpful. In the prologue, we observe Job as an idealist in elementary school, chapters one through two. In the dialogue, Job is a sophomore in college on the way to becoming wise. Finally, the I Am speeches address him as a student in graduate school where he is humbled and accepts that there are sufficient reasons to trust I Am without demanding of him rational explanations. And so I think that what, what we have hope you've seen, even from the life and teaching uh, from the book of Job, is that that's what you've seen. And that'll be our lives. That'll be our lives. That will come and that we will not be demanding any type of explanation from God, but we have, we have, oh, we have sufficient reasons to trust God and who he is. So, let's first, let's jump in. Uh, Understand, so we need to begin by understanding God. I just think it's so important in a class like this. You want to jump to, all right, let's talk about, let's dissect everything. Let's talk about God, let's talk about evil. Let's talk about man's responsibility. But first, let's, let's make sure we understand the greatness of God. So what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if that is the most important thing about us, then we can't skip over this, right? We can't skip over this point and think, oh, I, got, I, I understand God. Oh, do you? I want to make sure you do. I want to make sure that you have a strong conviction of who God is, the God of the Bible. You know, when I came in, Uh, this morning. This was on the the podium, Attributes of God. And I just thought, how fitting that fifth graders, fourth and fifth graders, I think, are going to be in here. And what are they learning? They're learning about the attributes of God, because even children can learn about the attributes of God. This isn't just for us, but even children can. God has revealed himself, and we want and can know him. And so first, what we need to remember is that there is a separation, a distinction between us and God. There is a creator and creature distinction. We have to embrace that. So for us to have true knowledge, true understanding of this world, Calvin says we need two pieces of knowledge, who God is and who we are in light of who he is. So we have to have those two pieces of information. So first, who's God? The holy one. The idea of God's holiness has two dimensions. He's a supreme righteousness. God is set apart with a white-hot righteousness, this purity, this righteousness that is unlike anything in this world. It is, it is his godness. It is this white-hot righteousness. And then he also has a supreme transcendence. God is wholly set apart in his fundamental essence as God. So he's both supremely righteous and holy, but he's also transcendent. So let's walk through some attributes of who God is. He has these great-making properties. He is self-existent. He is the uncreated creator of all. Before the world existed, he did. Before the foundation of the world, he had written our names in the Lamb's book of life. Now, tease that out. Tease that out. Then that that means before the world began, he knew there would be a fall and a need for a redeemer. So, tease that out even. So, Camp out there. Think about that. What does it mean that God is self-existent? He is the uncreated creator. He is self-sufficient and independent. He has no need of anything, nor is he dependent on anything outside of himself. He's infinite and perfect. There are no limits to the greatness of his being. All his attributes are perfect. He can be no less and no more than holy, good, just, loving, and wise. So it's important for us to understand that. So there, there are no limits to his greatness of being. All his attributes are perfect. So he has a holy and perfect love. He has a holy and perfect justice. He has a holy and perfect compassion. Those are all together. You have to hold those together. He's simple. There's a unity. God is not composed of parts like a puzzle that are somehow put together for some other source. No, all that is, is in God is God. He is a unified essence So we can't separate God. That's why with our triune God, there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. But there is that oneness, that unity. He's simple. He's united. All His attributes are necessary, co-equal, co-eternal, and co-dependent. So we can't elevate one above the other because they're all attributes of God and who He is. He's immutable. He does not change. It's essential to His being. He's not altered. Or affected by anything. So in Genesis 3 when the fall happens, God does not change in that moment. Oh, what do I do now? This happened, so how should I change? Do I change my plan? Do I change who I am? No. God is unchangeable. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's the source of all knowledge. He knows all things infallibly and exhaustively. He does not learn anything. He's omnipresent. He, God stands outside of space. He is present everywhere. However, because he's also an independent spirit, this denies pantheism, that he is everything, and, pan, and panentheism, that he is in everything. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is able to do anything that is logically possible. He's incomprehensible. Although God is noble, the infinite depth of his being is inexhaustible. It is not possible to know or comprehend God in all his fullness. I just wanted to give this to you so you can take time to read through that. I just think study God. So important. So important for you to understand the attributes of God. God. Who is he? What are his characteristics? So he is also the sovereign one. In order to make sense of God's relationship to evil, we must have a biblical understanding of his sovereignty. So God's sovereignty is his all-encompassing and meticulous. There are no maverick molecules running in the universe. So he is sovereign over all things. So such a view of sovereignty is utterly humbling as seen in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember in Daniel 4, Daniel 4, he, Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he's the king and he's boasting of his kingdom. And God warned him. And, he, and then he, he humbles Nebuchadnezzar. And he reminds him that, oh, you are but a creature and I am the king. And, he, and coming out of that, Nebuchadnezzar realizes his folly and his pride and that there is only one who is transcendent. There is only one who is the king of kings. So here are the components of his divine sovereignty. He has his eternal decree, his eternal decree, the establishing of God's comprehensive plan for history in eternity past. So let's look at Psalm 3311. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. The psalmist writes this, The counsel of the Lord stands forever forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So his counsel stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So it's his eternal decree. Then we have God's providence. So God is both the architect of history's plan as well as as its executor. He sustains and directs every thought, movement, and action in part and in whole over the entire course of, of history, And I think what is amazing is just to see there just the list of scriptures that point to this. That, that, that just highlights that this is true. This is what God says about himself in his word. That he is, he is not only sustaining the world, but he's directing it. So God is not some watchmaker, right? We can think people will say that about God. He just kind of turned it all on, got it going, and the world just kind of is. No, he is directing every thought, movement, and action. He is the author. We are in his story. And then it's his omnipotence. In order to ensure that God's plan unfolds as he designed it, he must have all the necessary powers to make it happen. So then this leads to the question, so what about God's sovereignty over evil? So God would not be the God as he describes himself if, if somehow evil exists outside of his sovereign control, right? So in his purpose, so we've already seen this in the life of Job. If you were here last week, Joe, um, Drew unpacked that for you, and then we'll look at a few others as we at the end of the class. But we you can also see this in Isaiah 45, Lamentations 3. So he's, he, there's even his sovereignty over evil. So then, God is transcendent author of all. So God's providence is not like a domino maze where He sets everything in motion, or He's not a grandmaster chess player trying to outmaneuver His opponents. He's like a Dickens or a Tolkien or a C.S. Lewis, a grand storyteller creating a grand epic. So it goes back to that story theme, right? You guys remember there's one story and it's, and it's, not, it's not just the U shape, right? It's the J shape. So it's not just, okay, we're trying to get back to Eden. No, we're actually going to get to the new heavens and the new earth and it's going to be better. It's going to be more glorious. And God is the author of that amazing story. God is also the good one. If God were all powerful but not all good, then we would have reason to fear him. What assures us that God's all-encompassing sovereignty is worthy of our full trust and unfailing praise is precisely because he is supremely good. I would say this is probably the thing that we assume and don't remind ourselves. I think we can talk about his sovereignty a lot. God is sovereign. He's in control. But then when suffering comes, when evil comes... I think it, it can highlight, well, we begin to discount his goodness. We begin to discount and not remember. Yes, he's sovereign, but he's also good. So I think we I think as a church we love to talk about, yes, God is He's in control over all things. But but we need to, with that same voice, we need to say, He's in control over all things, and He is good. We have to remember Him. We have to remember His heart. His goodness is directing His plans and his sovereignty they're tethered together remember he's simple they're united he's doing both of those things so if he's in control of all things and all these things are coming into my life then i have to believe that he's good okay so there's going to be good that comes out of this we have to fight to believe that that is the testimony of scripture which we'll see later he's a benevolent god god is the overflowing fountain of all good Psalm 34a, 145, the Psalms are filled with this. God is identified with every essence of love. He's the righteousness of God. So you see his righteousness. He is committed to only doing that which is right and good. So let's turn to 1 Timothy 6 real quick. And just read and hear 1 Timothy 6, 16. Who alone has immortality? Who dwells in unapproachable light? Whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. To the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Who alone has immortality? Who dwells in unapproachable light? His holiness, his light, his righteousness. No one can come into the presence of this God. But he's also just. He rewards righteousness equitably and he punishes all wickedness impartially. So you see that in Deuteronomy 32. So with all that in mind, let's make, how do we make sense of moral responsibility? So if God is meticulously sovereign in every detail of time and space, history, and the whole scope of actions taken by every human he creates, then how can he escape being charged with all that evil unfolds in his creation? How? Is God a passive policeman? Who refuses to intervene when criminals exercise their free will to commit crimes? Or is he the sinister mob boss who orders the criminals to commit their crimes? So is God saying, hey, go do this? Is he just standing back and being like, well, sorry, I can't do anything about it. What is he? So is God, it leads to the question, is God the author of evil? What would you say to that? Do you have to answer loudly, but how would you answer that? Somebody came up to you on the street Does God author evil? I mean, he's sovereign over all things. Is he the author? Is it from him? I mean, is it? The answer is no. We have to look at James 1.13. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So we say, no, God is not the author of evil evil. God cannot be the direct or even the vicarious instigator of evil. He does not infuse an evil will or implant evil thoughts in his creatures. So that's important. He does not do that. So what happens? Well, as scripture says, temptation happens when someone is lured and enticed by his own desire, right? By his own heart, his own sin. God cannot experience that. He is never, God is never lured and enticed toward evil by his own desire. And therefore, he doesn't do that to people. Which means he does not commend sin to people. He does not approve sin in people. He does not directly awaken sin in anybody. He doesn't directly awaken those lurings and those yearnings towards sin. However, he knows as God all the circumstances that a corrupt heart will respond to. He knows exactly how Satan functions and what Satan does in response to those kind of things. You saw that in Job, right? We got the curtain pulled back, and we got to see how Satan and God, that relationship. So what you see is God knows all the circumstances that a corrupt heart will respond to. He knows Satan and his functions exactly. And he may ordain that those circumstances and that Satan be in such a position that a corrupt heart will respond that way. But we cannot charge God with that evil. God is not the author of evil. He is not the one who brings about evil in our hearts. God's relationship to evil is asymmetrical. Do you understand what that means? What that means is that he stands behind good in direct way as the source of all good, but stands behind evil in an indirect way. So, as the one who sovereignly controls all things, whether good or evil. So, he stands behind good directly. He is good. But his stance behind evil is indirect. He is, there's no connection with evil. He's not the author of evil. But, can he use evil in the world? Can he bring about good through evil? Yes. Yes. So as the transcendent author of history, God stands outside the storyline. And this is where we're just not God, guys. Sorry, we're just, we're just not him. This is where we got to go back to. Are we making God in our image or are we made in his? He's the author. He's, he, he's the one that's outside of the story. He's the one writing it. So he stands outside of it. No one blames Tolkien for the evil of Sauron, even though he writes it into the story of the Lord of the Rings. But I think this is important, too. Tolkien provides the worldview by which to judge Sauron and his evil actions, right? So I think it's important to understand that. So here's the analogy from Wayne Grudem. That thing's helpful. The analogy of an author writing a play may help us to grasp how both aspects can be true. In the Shakespearean play, Macbeth, the character Macbeth murders King Duncan. Now, if we assume for a moment that this is a fictional account, the question may be asked, well, who killed King Duncan? On one level, the correct answer is Macbeth. Within the context of the play, he carried out the murder and is rightly to blame for it. But on another level, a correct answer could be Shakespeare. He wrote the play, he created all the characters in it, and he wrote the part where Macbeth killed King Duncan. It would not be correct to say that because Macbeth killed King Duncan, William Shakespeare did not kill him. Nor would it be correct to say that because William Shakespeare killed King Duncan, Macbeth did not kill him. Both are true. On the level of the characters in the play, Macbeth is fully, 100% caused Duncan's killing. But on the level of the creator of the play, William Shakespeare caused it. In similar fashion, we can understand that God fully causes things in one way, and we fully cause things in another way as creatures. So I think it's just important that he is a transcendent author that is writing a story that is, that is not detached. So he's not detached from these things, but he is not held culpable in the same way. And he is not. He, so Duncan is 100% responsible for the King Duncan's death. And we cannot say that just because God is the creator of all these things, that then he too is responsible in the same way that King Duncan is. Yes, is 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 God standing behind evil? Yes, in an indirect way, but not a direct way. Why? Well, we go back to James one thirteen, right? He's not the author of evil. He 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 doesn't he doesn't he he doesn't bring about the evil. They are, people are lured and enticed by their own desires in their heart by their own sin to do these things. So we have to remember that. So moral. So what is moral responsibility in Scripture? Here we go. The knowledge of good and evil. God implants his moral law upon the hearts of all people. He has given us a conscience, an internal alert system that affirms good actions and warns of evil. So if you just go read Romans 1 and 2. That's all you got to do. Read that and you will be shown that although we knew the truth, we suppress it. Right? And then so what's, what about the people who've never heard the law, what, never heard of God? Well, they too have a law written on their hearts. They too have a law, have a system that is from God that God will hold them accountable to. So even if they say if they've never heard, they've never seen a Bible, never heard a Bible, well, there's even God has given man a conscience and a sense of right and wrong that he too can hold account them account to. So he's given us morality. He's given us that. The in, so he's given us the intentions of the heart. The heart is the mission control center for human behavior. So the question then is is what kind of tree are you? You a tree that bears life or death? A tree is known by its fruit. That's what Jesus was getting at. What is the treasure of your heart? So it's not so it's not just the actions but it's the heart. God makes judgments based on intentions, not just actions but intentions. God's supremely good intentions, God's sovereign plans coincide with his good pleasure and intentions. God can never have evil intentions. It's important. He never has evil intentions. His intentions are always only for good. So Joseph and his brothers, right? What you intended for evil, God meant for good. You look at the crucifixion, go to the cross. What these these men, who we've heard in our Acts series, you killed him, right? You killed him that God planned this plan of redemption, but you were the ones that killed him, right? So what these men intended for evil, the evil that they brought about by crucifying an innocent man, this, this unrighteous act, well, God was able to bring good about through it. His intentions are always good. So how does all this work? Well, this is a position of biblical compatibilism and moral responsibility. So what is that? Well, here's biblical, here is compatibilism. There is a dual explanation, a double agency for every human choice. God's meticulous sovereignty is compatible. So that's where you get this position. It's compatible with human freedom and responsibility. So let's look at Proverbs 16.9. Because that is... Something that comes up, a passage that is regularly brought about. The heart of man. So, hey, the heart, right? It's important. The intentions of the heart. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. Is, I mean, no problem with that. Proverbs, you know, Solomon had no problem writing that. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. His steps. So here's how D.A. Carson, he gives a helpful introduction. So I'm going to share this with you. So God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in scripture to reduce human responsibility. Okay. So he's absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in scripture to reduce human responsibility. Human beings are responsible creatures. That is that we choose, we believe, we disobey, we respond, and there is moral significance to our choices. But human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. So there is this compatibility. There is this one another. So that picture, here's kind of how things go. God is. He's above us. He is the remote He's remote, but primary cause. So He is distinct from us. He is not like us. He is God. There's no one like Him. So God is. He has always existed, and we are. And then there is this immediate, but secondary cause, which is our actions. But these are not separate. These are not distinct things. God is. He's primary. Then you have our actions, and they're immediate, but secondary cause. They lead to our actions. So that's how... Scripture can say what you intended for evil, God ultimately meant for good. Okay? So your actions were secondary. Here was the primary purpose for him. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. That's what you do when you talk. The reality is we always do what we most want. We always do what we most want to do based on the strongest motives of our heart. I think that's helpful. (laughs) You want to talk about moral responsibility? Okay, tell me what you desire. Tell me what you desire. Tell me about what drives you. Tell me about your heart. That's where scripture takes us. That's that's where scripture takes us to talk about responsibility. It's the heart. It's the heart of man. It's It's our heart. So we always do what we most want to do based on the strongest motives of our heart. It directs our wills, bearing in mind that the intentions of our hearts are tied to our fundamental nature, whether corrupted or regenerated. So that's helpful, right? So our hearts, before being born again, are corrupted. We're fallen. We're dead in our sins. So what does that do to our desires? Well, they're all skewed. They're all opposed to the will of God. Now, they're not fully, right? So we're... you know, it's not that we, with depravity, it's not like that we're utterly depraved. No, we're totally depraved. So yes, there's, there's nothing that we can do that's going to earn our righteousness before God, but it's not like that we are the worst people ever. No, there's common grace, and there's things in our life that function to where we can actually do good things. You can actually love your neighbor in a way. You know, you can be nice to people. There are people in this world who are not Christians, and they're doing some good, but they are, their goodness does not gain them entrance into heaven. So, but I think it's helpful to remember when we're regenerated, the, what is written on our heart? The law of God is written on our heart. So that's important. It's our heart. It's our will. It's our choices. So why do we want to please God now? What's, what's, what's that? We are new in Christ. It's immediate. It's a secondary cause. Why is our action changed? We go back to God because he has... Given us new life in Christ because He has given us new hearts. So, why is it that I love God? Well, it's Him. It's not me, it's Him. So, hundreds of passages suggest, Carson suggests, could be explored to demonstrate that the Bible assumes both that God is sovereign and that people are responsible for their actions. As hard as it is for many people in the Western world to come to terms with both truths at the same time, it takes a great deal of interpretive ingenuity to argue that the Bible does not support them. So there's a, I think, did I give you this? Good. Okay. So there's passages. Read through them. Study them. Look at that. Well, I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He he says, when people ask me, how do you reconcile um, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, Spurgeon always says, well, I don't try to reconcile friends. I love that. I think that's true. That, that is, that's what he's getting at. The Bible does not present those two things as enemies. Do you? And if you do, why? Because I don't think the Bible puts those two at enmity. I think they're actually, the Bible says, hey, they're, they're able, God is able to use those things together. But what is the primary cause? What's the secondary? What's the immediate? What's informing our actions? So I think it's important for us to see all those things. And, it's so, and this is why this is so important when, with this question of the problem of evil. When we're talking about God's sovereignty, He's sovereign over all things. And how can He bring about good? And how are we involved? I think this is getting to the heart of it. I think this is getting to how God, how can God bring about any good from this situation? How can God produce any good? Well... What scripture would say is is that he can, and he is able, and he does time and time and time again. And the reality is, the hard part is, is we may not be able to see it now, but we're not God. And he has a plan, and he has a purpose, and he has things that he has accomplished. When, if all you have to do is go to the cross, all you have to do, we go to the cross. And this is what D.A. Carson says about the cross. He says this, and this is from Acts 4, um, 23 to 30. He says, Christians who may deny compatibilism on front after front becomes, become compatibilist, knowing or otherwise, when they think about the cross. There is no alternative except to deny the faith. And if we are prepared to be compatibilist when we think about the cross, that is to accept both the propositions I set out at the head of of this chapter as applied to the cross, it is only a very small step to understanding that compatibilism is taught or presupposed everywhere in the Bible. At Calvary, all Christians have to concede to the truth of these two statements, or they give up their claim to be Christians. Now, that is a very strong statement. I think what he's getting at is he's saying, hey, these two statements that God did this and you did this. God did this and you did this. So uh, this is what he then says, the deepest foundation of compatibilism. So I am driven to see not only that compatibilism is itself taught in the Bible, but that it is tied to the very nature of God. I am driven to see that my ignorance about many aspects of God's nature is precisely that same ignorance that instructs me not to follow the whims of many contemporary philosophers and deny that compatibilism is possible. The mystery of providence is in the first instance not located in debates about decrees, free will, the place of Satan and the like, it is located in the doctrine of God. And I think that's just so important, so helpful that we have to go back to who is God? Who are we? What did God do on the cross and how did that happen? If we truly believe that the greatest, one of the greatest evil that has ever happened is that the Son of God was killed, he was crucified. If we believe that and we see that these two statements, that you killed him, but God had ordained it, he had planned it, he had brought it about, and we hold those two in tandem, then how can we say that about the cross, but then begin to weaken that grasp on other things in this world? That's just, I think that's the position that Carson's coming from, and it's something that we have to wrestle with. So start there, and then you begin to look at Joseph and his brothers. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. What about Pharaoh? Did Pharaoh harden his heart or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? When I read Exodus, it's both. So who is it? When you read about Eli's worthless sons in Samuel, and you read about his, he says this in verse Samuel 2.12. Now the sons of Eli, they were worthless men. So these were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. If someone sins, and then this is what 25 says. So that's who these men are. Here's what 1 Samuel 2, 25 says. If someone sins against the man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they, this, these worthless men, they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Explain that to me. So was it these worthless men or was it the will of the Lord that wanted to put them to death? Or was it both? Was it that these men were worthless men because of their hearts, because of their nature, because they hated God? But it was the will of God that these men be put to death. 1 Samuel 2.34 And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. So when, when, they were, when they died on the same day, was it because of what they were doing or because it was the will of the Lord? What time is it? Oh, we gotta stop. Okay, so I think the Bible is full of this stuff. I mean, there's so many examples. And I love it. I love it. And I think that's why I give you so much to take with you, because I want you to study it. I want you, I don't want you just to come here and think, okay, Jake's going to tell me everything. No, I'm going to give you so you study. Guess what? God's Spirit is with you, and you can read your Bible, and you can study these things, and you can be what I want more than anything is for you to be amazed. So I hope what I've done is I've given you some. I hope I haven't confused you too much. Uh, What I hope is I've given you faith. I hope I've given you excitement. Because this is who God is. This is this. These are eternal realities. These are things that are so important. They're going to change the way that we view the world. They're going to change the way that we view God. These things matter. All you have to do is live long enough, and you will suffer. Evil is going to come your way. You live in a fallen world. How you think about this world is important. What's more important is how you think about the Creator of the world. How you think about the Lord. And what I hope is that this has given you more than anything an accurate and true picture of who God is. This is is what Carson says. He says, this is, at the end of the day, the ultimate test of our knowledge of God. Here's the ultimate test. Is it robust enough that when faced with excruciating adversity, it may prompt us to lash out with hard questions, because I think the Lord can take our hard questions, but will never permit us to turn away from God. That is the kind of faith that I hope each of you have and that we're able to bring our questions to God, but no matter what comes, no matter what we face, we never turn away from him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for your truth. Thank you for these few moments we have together. I pray. You would use all this to bolster and build and strengthen and establish our faith and our confidence and our love for you. I pray you bless all these people that came. Oh Lord, I pray you would meet with them as they continue to study. I pray they would hunger and thirst for righteousness. Give us a right view and understanding of who you are. Help us to trust you. No matter what comes, we can trust you because you are both sovereign, but you are also good. We love you, we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of his word and gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.